Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Welcome back everyone to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Tanya here, and today we are going excited to be answering one of our listeners' questions. So our listener, Madeline, wrote, I see everyone wearing continuous glucose monitors now. I don't have diabetes. Should I be wearing one? And if so, what am I looking for? So it's actually quite a fascinating and complex world of measuring blood sugar levels and what those mean, um, and then further understanding how the foods we eat impact our blood sugar levels and our health. So I'm going to say... Grab your favorite healthy snack and tune in as we unravel this science behind what a healthy glucose response is and should look like. And today, I'm actually going to be interviewing my own co-host, Monica, who is a longtime health educator with Purdue Extension and registered dietitian who has taken a personal passion on this topic, which seems to be just overwhelming the social scene. So, Monica, if you can help us to kick things off, let's start with the basics. What is glucose and why does it matter for our bodies? I'm glad you asked that question because, as you said, it is overtaking the social scene. And so we should really start with the basics and talk about what even glucose is for our body. And glucose is really just a simple sugar or carbohydrate. So I know everybody's heard the word carbohydrate because it's all the fat, um, but it's just a simple sugar. And that serves its primary uh, source of energy for all living organisms. And so not just us humans, but that does include us, um, but any other living organism in this world, carbohydrate is the main energy source for them. And it's it's essential. Um, it plays a crucial role in our body's energy production and as, as well as various metabolic processes. Okay. So wait, I want to take two things out of that. So every living organism needs some form of carbohydrate to survive. Correct. Okay. That is fascinating. <laughs> I think from the perspective that people who are really anti-carb and want to say it's not essential, it's not just essential for us, it's essential for basically all living organisms. And the second thing I want to pull out of that is we hear the word metabolic processes or me metabolism a lot. And I just, for the sake, and that can mean different things in different contexts. So for the sake of this conversation, can you share with our listeners um, what you mean by metabolic process? Absolutely. So it, it's really kind of difficult to explain, but if you take a peek inside of any cell in our body, you're going to find this remarkable hub of activity. And um, so it doesn't matter if you're awake or you're sleeping um, or if you're running like I was over the weekend or just lounging around watching TV, your energy in your body is being transformed inside our cells. So our metabolic processes is changing forms of molecules um, that undergo the connected chemical reactions that keep us alive and function. So lots of times people think about, um, let's say, tissue breakdown. And so we break down tissue lots of times to get energy for our body, but then our process also goes for the equilibrium of building up tissue um, and so storing the energy for later. And so it's just this balancing act back and forth, back and forth um, in order to keep our bodies where they need to be. And so 
in this situation, we're talking about glucose specifically because it is our body's preferred source of energy. So when you consume carbohydrates in your diet, your digestive system then breaks that down into glucose, and that is then absorbed into our bloodstream and transported to cells throughout the body. And then our cells will actually use that glucose as fuel to carry out various functions um, like muscle contraction, the brain activity that's happening, um, as well as maintenance of just all your bodily functions. And the concentration of glucose in your bloodstream is referred to blood sugar or your blood glucose level. Um, and so that is, when we refer back to Madeline's question, that is what they're monitoring. They're monitoring those blood glucose levels in, the, in their bloodstream. And so maintaining blood glucose within a specific range is very essential for our overall health. When that gets out of whack, that is when things start to cause health problems. So um, a couple words here to describe is when blood glucose levels are too high, this is known as hyperglycemia. Um, and that is typically uh, what you think of when people have diabetes is hyperglycemia or too high of blood glucose levels. And then it can also go too low, which is the opposite problem that you don't often hear too many people talking about. But this is known as hypoglycemia. And some people have that um, health challenge as well. And so when this happens, this is what leads to our health problems. Um as we kind of mentioned, though, time and time again on our episode is our body is very, very smart. And so the body tries to tightly regulate the blood glucose levels through the actions of our hormones in our body. So in order, uh, one that most people have heard of a hormone would be insulin um, and glucagon is the opposite one. And that might that might be one that people have heard of less. Um, but insulin is produced in our pancreas and it helps lower the blood glucose levels by promoting the uptake of glucose into the cells. And so we have that blood glucose circulating through our bloodstream, but insulin, it acts as a key to unlock the door to let that blood glucose into our, into our cells to actually be used as energy. And then in the contrast, though, we have glucagon, which raises our blood glucose levels by encouraging the liver to release stored glucose into the bloodstream. So when our blood sugars go too low, so in that hypoglycemia situation, glucagon comes into play and actually releases that glucose into our bloodstream. So I think of when you're exercising and need a little bit more uh, glucose to get that energy you need, uh, that is when glucagon comes into play. But excess glucose is stored in our livers and muscles in the form of glycogen, so which can be converted back into glucose when the body needs additional energy. So when that glucagon releases it from our livers and muscles, uh, that is when it gets back released into our bodies for energy. And this happens lots of times, as I already mentioned, as physical activity or maybe if someone is fasting um, for any reason, that might occur. So, but glucose is naturally pleasant, present in various carbohydrate containing foods like our fruits, some of our vegetables, grains, legumes. And when we consume these foods, your bodies break down the carbohydrate they consume into glucose. So then we have energy. That is very complex. <laughs> so let me try to summarize that and you can correct me if I miss anything. So we eat, our body takes that food, um, converts the carbohydrates down to the simple sugar glucose, which is now in free floating in our bloodstream. The pancreas releases insulin, which encourages cells to uptake the blood sugar. Um, it's their food. It gives them permission to eat, so to speak. Any excess blood sugar, blood glucose is converted and stored in the liver. And this process helps to 
um, rebalance our blood sugar after it, it, when it naturally peaks after a meal. So then let's say we've um, went several hours without eating, which to our body is the same thing as fasting, right? Because we haven't eaten for a while. Our blood sugar starts to drop. Um, the body signals the hormone glucagon, which then releases the stored blood sugar from the liver to bring your blood sugar levels back up, thereby maintaining that equilibrium that you spoke about in the beginning. Yes, that's a great description. And I think it might be help paint a clear picture too, if you, instead of focusing on fasting, but thinking about physical activity. So just this weekend, I actually ran a half marathon. And um, in some of our previous episodes, we talked about this as well, that when you're exercising for that long of a time, your body has used all your glucose stores. And so then that's when that glucagon needs to come in and break down some of that glycogen that's being stored um, to utilize it. So that that kind of extended physical activity is when this is really, really going to come into play. Or fasting, like you said, is another option, because sometimes we go longer than we need to without a meal um, due to work or whatever might be happening. Right. So the point is, as our body is designed very creatively to, to do its best job at maintaining that balance, and oftentimes we're trying to interfere with a perfectly fine machine um, and just need to let it do its job. But, um, you know, thinking of that hypoglycemia, that low um, blood sugar. So I'm sure our listeners have experienced this before. Maybe you've had a really high carbohydrate meal. It was Halloween and you snuck into your kid's candy jar. Um, and then afterwards you got that sugar crash. Um, and we know that, um, or we, you know, in the media, they talk about, well, let me back up because we're talking about continuous blood glucose monitors, like how is that valuable in tracking those, um, glucose crashes and what really is a crash? That's a great question. And I guess before we get too excited about the spike or the crash, um, this is probably a good time to talk about what is normal because as you said, you've had a high carbohydrate meal and so you had a spike and then maybe subsequently a crash. Well, that's not really uh, normal. That's not what's supposed to be happening <laughs> if we're eating a well-balanced diet. Uh, so let's first talk about that normal response. And um, so it is completely normal though for your blood glucose to rise and fall before and after meals. Um, that's, that's how our bodies work. <laughs> so that's why we have the insulin and the glucagon. But the extreme to which it spikes or crashes is dependent on the food you've eaten. So a glucose spike and crash occur when you've had a rapid or significant fluctuation in blood glucose levels. Um, so a spike would occur if you consume foods or drinks that are high in simple sugars or carbohydrates that are rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream. So like you said, Halloween candy, or this could include a sugary sweetened beverage uh, that we oftentimes say you need to avoid. And especially if you haven't, if you don't consistently drink sugar sweetened beverages and one day you have one, that will probably cause you to have a little spike in your blood glucose. So when you consume these high sugar items, your blood sugar levels will quickly rise and that leads to a surge of energy. And so I know lots of kids, you know, with their candy and their pop and they're like, oh my gosh, all kinds of alertness and energy. Um, it, it's temporary though. It's this temporary feeling of increased alertness and energy. And unfortunately, this spike is often short-lived. The body then responds to that sudden influx of glucose by releasing the insulin hormone that we talked about already. And remember that hormone helps the cells absorb glucose for energy just 
for storage. And then the insulin's response can sometimes be excessive because you had a lot of sugar come in. And so the insulin comes in to act quickly, which then unfortunately causes the blood sugar to tank or drop rapidly. So then this is what is known as the crash, the sugar crash, if you will. Okay, but, but Monica, it feels like we're crashing because it drops so rapidly. It's not actually dropping to a point where it would be considered hypoglycemic. That's a Possibly. It, it depends how uh, how big the insulin response is. But yes, it could just be because of that quickness. Um, but because you also had such a large surge, insulin could uh, react too much. So, so that doesn't sound very healthy if we are like um, periodically giving our pancreas like shocks of sugar, if you will. It's like almost like giving it an electric volt, um, uh, uh, especially like you said, if we're not used to drinking or consuming a large amount of um, refined sugars. Not that I want to promote that as a something we should do every day, but so what does that do over time to someone's body? When you have these uh, spikes and crashes, that's definitely when the health complications come in. And so you're absolutely correct in that uh, it's not healthy for us. Um, and that's why you and I on this uh, podcast are always promoting eating a well-balanced diet. <laughs> and so uh, eating carbohydrates, whether they're refined or more complex, are not necessarily a bad thing as long as we're eating them amongst a well-balanced diet instead of... Um, uh, uh, highly restricting them or eating them in excess. But I want to talk more about what happens when that crash occurs because um, the crash makes the blood sugar levels drop to too low. Um, and typically as a result of this, the body's insulin response to glucose, uh, you have that spike again. <laughs> so um, this can cause you to skip meals. Um, it might cause you to engage in extreme physical activity um, without actually having the proper nutrition. Um, or if you have medical conditions like diabetes, it can cause you to take too much insulin when you've gone down too low. And so it's really just this perpetual cycle that is, it, it's not good. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's really important too that you recognize that when your blood sugar levels plummet, you're now going to start having symptoms like fatigue, shakiness, sweating, dizziness, difficulty concentrating, sometimes even irritability, anxiety, even mood swings. <laughs> and so uh, now you're not just impacting yourself, but you might be impacting the people around you. And so, like I said, we really, we're not looking for the spikes and crashes, but uh, elevations and decreases are a completely normal thing when it comes to eating food, especially ones that contain carbohydrates. What I hear you saying, though, is getting back to your previous point, which is me eating a donut and um, a glass of juice or full sugar soda is way different than me um, eating a donut with a glass of milk that's going to give me some protein and a little bit of fat to slow the absorption of that sugar. So making sure that we're not just consuming a full, a well-rounded meal that's 100% simple carbs because that's not going to um, help to to impact the way that it's absorbed. It's going to hit us straight on. Yeah, and I like you said, that 
if you're having a bunch of uh, simple carbohydrates in one meal, but if you're having, you know, like an apple and some rice with a chicken breast and Brussels sprouts, that is not going to cause the spike that we're referring to. <laughs> so there's a huge right, difference between right. those, uh, those two meals, the donut yeah. and sugar, like you or uh, soda, like you mentioned, versus uh, right. yeah. some healthy carbs with your meal. Yeah, well, and because your example also has, you know, the fiber and, and it's a it's a, a wealthy, a healthy, complex carbohydrate. So so let's kind of move away from from that if we can and talk about what a healthy glucose response is, what that should look like um, and what people should expect to see if they've chosen to do this continuous blood glucose monitoring. Sure. So for a healthy individual and when I say healthy individual, I mean someone who is not um, been diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, your blood glucose, blood glucose will rise and fall within a normal range. And so fasting level typically means under 100 milligrams per deciliter. So that milligrams per deciliter is just the measurement of blood glucose in your bloodstream. Um, and I say lower than that, but I don't mean too low. <laughs> so if we're going below like 60, probably now you're getting into that hypoglycemia range um, and probably not a great idea. Um, but it could uh peak up to about 140 milligrams per deciliters um, two hours after eating. And so lots of times, um, if people who have diabetes are pretty familiar with this, that they go through a test um, where they fast, um, you know, probably for six to eight hours before they have to take a, a, a test. Um, and you, you're looking for your blood glucose to be 100 milligrams. Um, but then you eat in two hours afterwards, you want that to be less than 140 so as we mentioned earlier, that glucose is released from the carbohydrates and the food or drink that you uh, had during your meal during digestion. The blood glucose is then used by body's um, cells as the energy source. But remember, our insulin lets glucose pass from the blood into our bodies for energy. So insulin is responsible for keeping our blood glucose levels normal. So after two hours, you ate two hours later, your insulin should have done its job. That's why we have the two hour mark, uh, because that's the time it takes for our bodies to respond and think about this. And it should have brought your blood glucose levels back down to within that 100 and 140. So if you take your blood glucose 30 minutes or an hour after, it might be higher than 140. But we're not yet concerned about that because we need to get to that two hour mark. So essentially, if you're not at 140 or less um, in two hours, this could be a sign um, that you may be developing diabetes or simply maybe that meal that you had was just far too uh, high in carbohydrates. And so your body did not was unable to di uh, to absorb it. But I just I want to add here that we're not here to be diagnosing anyone with diabetes. And so please check with your primary care physician if this is something you're worried about. Um, but I, I just wanted to share those numbers with you that 100 to 140 is kind of that normal range uh, two hours after a meal um, that you should be seeing. And and you you and you use that to to describe as a healthy person who is non diabetic. But would you also say this excludes folks who have been told they have pre diabetes? Um, they're likely going to see numbers above that 140 or it's more possible they will. Absolutely, because that is exactly what prediabetes is, is that they don't have that diagnosis yet, um, but their blood glucose, that two hour aftermark is bordering on that 140 or higher. Um, and so they're not ready to fully diagnose you, but they, they want you to keep an eye on things. Um, so yes, if someone has been told they have prediabetes, then correct, they, I would not be counting that as a healthy individual. 
Mm -hmm. So, so we've talked about a couple of different scenarios here, talking about the, the highs and lows, the crashes that we might get from those simple sugars. We've talked about what our blood glucose levels should be like um, after a meal for the someone who's it doesn't have diabetes or prediabetes. So where does the continuous glucose monitor come into? They've become really popular um, just for this ordinary individual, um, people who are super health conscious, which is not a bad thing, but where do these come into play and what is the value in knowing your minute by minute blood glucose numbers? Yeah. So taking that back to Madeline's original question of, should I be wearing this? I, I really want to make sure we're emphasizing the difference here between a healthy individual without diabetes and a person with diabetes. And so it is absolutely crucial for individuals who have diabetes to be monitoring their, their blood glucose levels. Um, it, when someone has diabetes, the body's ability to regulate glucose is impaired. Um, so it leads them to have that chronically high blood sugar levels or what's known as type 2 diabetes. Um, but then there's also type 1 diabetes. And, but, and this is more the inability to produce insulin. But in either situation, these people need to be monitoring their blood glucose closely um, in order to determine if they need to be taking insulin um, or adjusting the food they're eating. But if you are not someone with diabetes, so those individuals without diabetes, there is really absolutely no need to be using these continuous glucose monitors. It's, it's really just generally unnecessary for them. Uh, the increase in popularity uh, of these continuous glucose monitors really can be attributed to the misconception that the higher insulin levels in your body lead to weight gain. So as I said earlier, when you eat carbohydrates, you have blood glucose that's released through digestion. So then insulin has to come in and help absorb that glucose. And so people have got this idea that having that increased level of insulin in your body causes weight gain. And this is really just simply inaccurate. <laughs> um, and so that's really where this popularity came from. And like you said at the beginning, Tanya, is that uh, it's all over social media. And so if it's on social media, that means we all need to be doing it, right? Uh, <laughs> so we're here to tell you no, just because it's on social media, it doesn't. Um, but to discuss that, uh, the, the false claim that insulin increases weight gain. Um, this has really come about because of mechanisms that occur. So I don't know if any of you know someone who's ever been diagnosed with diabetes, um, but typically when this happens, someone who's been diagnosed with diabetes experiences a significant weight loss right after, uh, uh, typically right before they're diagnosed. And the reason for this is because they have elevated blood sugar levels, which prevent glucose from entering the cells. And we don't have that insulin coming in when you have diabetes to help them do that. So the body's got to get rid of it somehow. It's so that what's left in the bloodstream is actually eliminated through peeing through our urine because uh, the body's got to get rid of it. Like we said, the body is smart. <laughs> it has all of these ways to help us get into equilibrium somehow. And so we expel that extra blood glucose through our urine, which means essentially you're peeing out the calories, causing the weight loss. So once that person's diagnosed and they start insulin therapy or any sort of medication to help them uh, manage their diabetes, the weight gain often happens. And this is because now the blood glucose is actually staying in your bloodstream and being absorbed into your body's uh, cells for that energy. And this reduces the calorie loss. And so that's why a lot of people think insulin actually causes weight gain. 
Yeah, and Monica, I just want to interject here and and point out to folks that this is not a health. This is like one of the least healthy ways to lose weight, right? Because your body is basically can- cannibalizing itself because it's not getting the carbohydrates it needs to fuel itself. Absolutely, yes, it's it's not recommended. Plus, when I'm talking about this weight loss, people's blood sugar levels. I said earlier, normal is 140. We're talking 300s is what's causing this weight loss, and that is just simply dangerous and very unhealthy. Absolutely. Um, and so, so I described what's happening there um, when you're, when you, um, before you're diagnosed and then once you're diagnosed. Um, but people might think, you know, I've had this diagnosis for a while and the weight is still here. <laughs> like, shouldn't that equal out? And the problem is like we talked about earlier with the spikes and the drops that it's again, that perpetual cycle of people who have uh, diabetes or maybe not, it, it could just be you uh, are having spikes and crashes. Um, they, they drop, they have what they, what they imagine. Maybe they took their blood sugar. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> they have what they're assuming is a low. So they try to correct it by consuming carbohydrates to bring it up. Well, now that brings it up too high. And so they went overboard on the carbs and now they take some insulin to correct it. Oh no, we went too low again. And so now we eat something again. And every time we eat something, that's just excess calories that we're consuming. And so it's, it really has nothing to do with the insulin in our body. It has to do with the food we're consuming um, that's causing this waking. So I'm going to take two things out of that um, that you just shared, which is number one, diabetes can be very, very tricky to manage. Um, and number two, that we cannot extrapolate data from folks with diabetes or take the experiences that someone with diabetes has and assume that that's applicable to someone who's not diabetic. That is 100% true. And yeah. like on your note of diabetes is hard to manage. Very true. And that's why that continuous monitoring for someone with diabetes is important. And I said, maybe you're taking your blood glucose or not. And I pick on my mom a lot. So I'll do it again. She was always guilty of she started having these feelings of being low, but she never actually took her blood glucose. So she would always drink orange juice or something to correct a low, but didn't actually know if she was low. And I'm sure she's not alone in doing that. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, that just leads to that. But I'm glad you said we can't take um, what people with diabetes experiences are to a healthy individual, because that's truly one of the problems with the blood, uh, the continuous blood glucose monitors. They are only FDA approved for people who have diabetes. And so we really cannot extrapolate the data that people with diabetes get from these continuous glucose monitors to a healthy individual. Right. Because, because, because me as a non-diabetic person is not going to experience the same challenges or concerns with my blood glucose as someone with um, diabetes or even pre-diabetes. So, um, Do you have advice for folks? So I feel like our message is you don't really need to invest in a continuous blood glucose monitor. Your body is is doing its job. If you suspect that, you know, if you're not feeling well and you're having some of these symptoms, it's best to talk to your physician. But let's say you're not really having symptoms um, that would warrant a visit to your doctor, but you just want to really make sure that you're not putting yourself into that spike crash cycle. So what advice would you give to folks? 
there's lots of research out there done by smarter people than I am. Um, and they have determined an adequate intake of many of our macronutrients. And so we have one of those for carbohydrates. Um, and it is based off of how much glucose your body needs. And when I say your body needs, I'm talking about your brain to function normally. And so your primary energy source for your brain is carbohydrates or glucose. And so for anyone over the age of one, which I'm assuming is everyone listening here, uh, this is 130 grams of carbohydrates is the minimum your body needs for your brain to function normally. Uh, but this does not necessarily take into account, you mentioned earlier, fiber um, as something that comes from our, our carbohydrate-based foods. And so it doesn't uh, take into account the adequate fiber we need and just other um, nutrients. And so the acceptable macronutrient distribution range, or the AMDR, is 45 to 65% of your calorie intake. And so that can differ uh, for many people, um, but based off of the 2000 calorie diet that our daily values and everything are based off of, that is about 225 grams of carbs to 330, 325, excuse me. And I know anytime I share this number with people, they kind of have this uh, internal panic and freak out, like, whoa, that's a lot of carbohydrates. Um, but I like to remind people too, that before maybe you started going to that extreme cutting to like 65 grams of carbs or whatever it might be, did you ever stop and think about what you were eating before? <laughs> did you just start cutting or did you calculate what you actually had? Um, so before you freak out, think about that. Um, and if you're sitting at a desk all day, you probably don't need to be on that higher range. Um, but if you're doing a lot of physical activity, like I said, I ran a half marathon, I needed some more carbohydrates for that activity. And so I wanted to be on the higher range there um, so that I wasn't, as you mentioned, cannibalizing my body and breaking down my, um, my stores. Yeah. And, you know, and I get that same reaction too, when I talk to folks about um, the recommended ranges of carbs and like, and if you count out, um, the, um, the foods, the quantity of food that you would get for 225 carbohydrates, it's actually quite large. And so, well, no wonder why people are hungry if they're not <laughs> eating any carbs, but we got to remember that we're eating, we're, we're preferring to eat most of our carbs as, as whole foods. So we're getting that fiber, we're getting different nutrients, micronutrients going in with that. So it's not just like my example earlier, eating that donut. Tanya, you've also mentioned um, pairing your carbohydrates. So that's going to be important too, to avoid that spike and crash. So not only the, the, the total amount of carbohydrates we're eating, but what you're pairing it with. And so I always love the example of an apple with peanut butter. So while an apple alone might kind of spike your blood glucose level up to that 140 or higher, when you pair it with peanut butter, you're now pairing it with some protein and fat. And that actually helps your blood... Uh, the spike not occur. So you might have a little bit of an increase, say up to like 120, um, and then it's going to stay steady there for a while before it comes back down, as opposed to go when you only eat carbohydrates by themselves, it goes up and straight back down. And so it's really, really important uh, to pair those carbohydrates with a protein or a fat um, in order to help. It's going to help you stay full longer, like you mentioned <laughs> just a moment ago, um, but it's also going to help prevent that, uh, that spike and decrease, which then ultimately results in some hunger. And you've also mentioned fiber. So that's another big one. Uh, so fiber helps keeps us full. Um, and oftentimes on a low carb diet, we've severely restricted that fiber, um, but fiber helps us 
and I should say dietary fiber, not just fiber, um, helps us promote health, especially in our digestive system. So I'm sure everybody has heard about fiber helping you poop. Um, and so that's important. It also helps reduce our dietary cholesterol as well as fat absorption. It's ultimately lowering blood glucose levels, uh, which, you know, we're talking about glucose here. Uh, so that's going to be important as well. So when people want to talk about a miracle food, fiber is the one I always want to say, miracle food right here. It does all the great things. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, um, I'll, I'll tell on myself a little bit. I know there's some controversy about whether boxed cereal is considered healthy or not, but, um, for many, many years, that was my breakfast and being the good little nutrition educator I was, I followed all the rules here, see my air quotes. And I had, you know, my cereal, my low fat cereal with my skim milk. And I would always be hungry like two hours later. And then one day I was visiting my brother and I stayed the night and they buy 2% milk. And I noticed that I could eat the same cereal with 2% milk. And magically I stayed full a lot longer and I could only attribute it to the fact that I was getting a little bit of fat from that milk um, that was helping to slow down my di digestion and satiate me just a little bit better. And so, um, yes, just another example of how we can go overboard and um, kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak. Yes, all of our macronutrients are important. So we spend a lot of time talking about carbohydrates, but carbs, fat, and protein, they're all very important for that well-balanced diet. So so let's get back to blood glucose specifically, though. Um, so while we're trying to say that continuous monitoring is, is really not necessary, unless you're someone who has really um, hard-to-control diabetes, that can be a really valuable tool, tool excuse me, um, and, and blood glucose rises are completely normal. Um, that's what our body does. But are there any negative impacts that we can be looking for, that we should be looking for, or just be aware of? Absolutely. So there are negative impacts on our health, just like with anything. There can be a negative impact on our health. But it's not the insulin. The insulin is not causing the weight gain. <laughs> um, it has more to do with where we started today, with those spikes and the crashes that follow, because these crashes lead to overeating. Um, so this may lead you to want to consume sugary drinks, high calorie foods um, to counteract those crashes. Because when uh, your blood sugar is low, it's just, it's causing you to have those cravings for something. Or uh, sometimes maybe people think of comfort foods, like I need something to comfort me. Um, and, and so, and again, like those repeated spikes and crashes, um, when combined with diet high and refined sugars and carbohydrates leads can lead to type two diabetes. And so again, not where we want to be in a, um, a bad situation. The fluctuations, um, they can lead to, they're associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease um, and can be contributed to inflammation or damage to the blood vessels. And so we need to make sure we're avoiding those spikes and crashes. That is really where the health complications come in. Um, it's not necessarily with consuming uh, carbohydrate-based foods, but consuming them um, in excess or too little, I guess, and causing those uh, major fluctuations and appetite swings. Um, so keep your blood sugar level steady, and this should help us avoid those negative impacts. And I know you're probably thinking, well, Monica, how do we keep our blood sugars steady without monitoring them with a continuous glucose monitor? And as I said earlier, just a reminder that the FDA has only approved those monitors for people with diabetes. And so they've undergone rigorous testing and their algorithm is tailored for that population. Um, 
to alert them to take action when they need to. So the data that we're gleaning from that is just, it's simply not reliable for those without diabetes. And so try to follow some of those things we've recommended as far as staying in that acceptable macronutrient distribution range for carbohydrates, pairing them with your uh, protein and fat, and making sure that we have a high fiber um, carbohydrate-based food when we're consuming those. Yeah. So it really just comes back to the basics. I think that we've talked about this on many episodes about how we've, we've gone a little too far in trying to micromanage our nutrients at the like almost cellular level. And if we just kind of take a step back, look at our plate, is it balanced? Does it have multiple food groups um, that we're, we're probably going to be okay that we don't need some of these excess tools. Absolutely. And just remember that that glucose is the fundamental sugar that plays a central role in providing energy for our bodies. So we need it. It helps us maintain our overall health. Um, It's the key component in the human diet. It's tightly regulated, like you said, and um, it ensures that our body has the energy it needs. So just remember, it's ultimately these excess calories that we're consuming that are stored as fat and not simply by eating some carbohydrates at our meals. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not all about the carbs. The carbs are not the bad guy. Um, so my summary of this is our body needs carbs. Our body actually needs kind of a substantial amount of carbs. If we have any sort of activity in our life at all, the majority of those go to our brain. Um, so brain fog is a real thing. If you're eating, um, an extremely low carb diet, and that's the reason why, Um, because your brain is the primary consumer of our carbs and our body has built-in mechanisms to keep everything steady if we are being reasonable and treating it kindly by eating a variety of foods. Now that's not saying that you have to have um, a dietitian um, plan all of your meals and keep it strictly regulated. It means being reasonable and knowing that there's a time for a treat, but the majority of the time it's time to, to keep it balanced. Um, do you have any favorite resources that you would like to share on this topic, Monica? I don't necessarily have any favorite resources, but we talk a lot about how social media tells you one thing. So my uh, my plug would be to make sure you're following some registered dietitians on social media. One of my favorite ones is a previous um, guest that we've had, Gerald the RD, um, is his tagline on Instagram. Um, another guest, uh, the Purdue. Uh, sports dietitian, Lauren Link. Um, she's got a couple different ones linked to nutrition and uh, boiler fuel, I think, are her two accounts. Um, those are some great places to start. Yes, fantastic. Let's um, start liking and promoting some of those more um, research-based suggestions that we find on the media. So thank you everyone for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop by um, on social media and give us a holler. We'd love to, uh, to chat with you. Um, and so I would just like to say thank you for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. You can find us on social media at Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you. <laughs>